Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Have you ever worked on a project, investing your time, effort, and energy, only to find out your boss or organization didn't really care about what you worked on, or maybe they never even looked at it? Today on Conflict Managed, Dr. Kevin Tempe discusses the importance of valuing workers through respecting their time. Kevin talks about the value of clarifying work expectations, the role of strong emotions in the workplace, and his ADA advocacy work. Kevin Tempe is Professor and Department Chair of Philosophy at Calvin University. He holds the endowed William H. Jellema Chair in Christian Philosophy. His academic interests include free will, virtue ethics, philosophy of religion, philosophy of disability, and metaphysics. Kevin has written a lot of books and articles. I've posted some of his most recent work in the show notes, but for a full accounting, I encourage you to go over to his Calvin University bio page, and it has a full accounting of what he's been up to. Kevin also runs a disability advocacy group, 22 Advocacy, that focuses primarily on helping families of disabled students get the supports they're supposed to get under federal education law. Kevin has three kids and a wife that he loves dearly, and he also loves coffee. Hello, Kevin, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Hello, Mary. It's good to be here today. It's so great to have you. Uh, We're just going to jump right into it. Will you tell me a little bit about your work history? Sure. Uh, I teach at Calvin University. This is the third university that I have taught at in the philosophy department, and I have been in a university setting after earning my PhD for something like 18 years now. Um, Most of that has just been as the member of uh, a department, but for the past year, I have also served as department chair. What did you do before you went off to college? Did you have any um, like high school jobs? Yeah, I grew up uh, along with my brother uh, mowing lawns in our neighborhood. I babysat uh, in the summers um, quite a bit as a child, sometimes even up to full time. And then I spent much of my high school working at a video store back back when there were video stores before Blockbuster even came to the small Ohio town that I grew up in. Oh, wow. So when you were in college, did you you have a job when you were in college? Yeah, I think I worked at the video store for a little bit uh, in college as well. I went to college in the town that I grew up in, so that was easy. And I spent at least a year or two working at a deli at the next town over uh, on their college campus, uh, making sandwiches, selling uh, college students cigarettes and and caffeine, and would work in the summer either at the YMCA where I taught rollerblading and did some other programming, uh, and also spent a summer making industrial electric switch gear that were basically like fuse boxes for entire cities. (laughs) <laughs> That's very varied um, early work history. So when you think about your early work history and um, all the different kinds of 
things that you did before you got into academia. Uh, what's the best early work experience you had and what was good about it for you? Um, I loved uh, working at the video store. My brother, who is two years older, started working there before I did. We would sometimes work together. Um, any conflict was just sort of the, the natural conflict that comes between age, uh, teenage brothers. Um, but it was an opportunity where, you know, if, if there wasn't anybody in the store, so basically as long as it wasn't a weekend night when we were uh, entertaining half the town, uh, we could watch movies, uh, you know, uh, listen to movies, listen to concerts while we dusted or did other things in the shop. And that was just a lot of fun. It was really flexible, low pressure. People came in, you talked to them about book rec or your movie recommendations and uh, sometimes did homework. So the flexibility was great. Now, I think it's interesting to look at people's early career um, because a lot of, of course, your students know you as uh, Dr. Tempe, you know, full professor who has this um, particular kind of job. And how do you know, how do you get there? And uh, apparently it's Blockbuster or something else like that. Mowing lawns, babysitting. Oh, I was a, a, a uh, church janitor for a number of years when I was getting my master's as well. So add that to the very varied list of things that I have done. Do you think those varied occupations that you had, how have they informed what kind of colleague you are today? That's a good question. And I'm not sure that they definitely have. I mean, a lot of the jobs that I've done involved working uh, with people, but not always um, you know, so when I'm mowing, I'd have to talk to the people whose yard I was mowing or talk to my dad when I broke something on the tractor, um, you know, but for 45 minutes to an hour and a half, it's just me and my headphones and uh, in high school, my, uh, my Metallica, uh, just having a good old time listening to music. Um, when I was a church janitor, I also, you know, cleaned during the week when there wasn't a whole lot going on, listening to uh, stuff on my headphones. Um, so I've always, uh, I mean, a lot of the jobs have, have had a fair bit of uh, time to myself, though that's also not true of when I worked in the factory, I was working on part of a team, some of the, the metal work that we did was too heavy. Um, and so I just had to, you know, learn to get along with folks anywhere from my brother to the sort of folks that, that work in heavy machinery factories in small town Ohio in the 90s to, you know, pastors and church secretaries so quite a, a wide range of folks um, that uh, I, I had to engage with and, and figure out what sort of background they were coming from what sort of relationship that they or what sort of encounter that they they expected in some kind of uh, work uh, interaction and uh, you know most of the time I I'm, I'm actually a really profound introvert <laughs> which a lot of my, I, I learned how to fake that in the classroom or to hide it in the classroom. A lot of my students don't get that. But often I just want, you know, to the uh, best that I can be to, to let, uh, sort of let, uh, to be trusted, to, to ha have the opportunity to go off and do the job that I'm supposed to do and, uh, you know, work as well as I can. It sounds like a lot of your early work experiences are kind of similar to being um, the professor life where, there are certain things that you have to do and you have a certain constituents, but a lot of the time is self-directed, right? You decide what you're going to write, what you're going to read, what you're going to, how you're going to put your classes together. There is committee work. There is all of that, but a lot of it is work that is directed by you. 
Yeah, I've, I've found myself saying a lot over the past at least decade that the flexibility of being an academic is the best part of the job. And it's also the worst part of the job. Um, I mean, it's great. We have, my wife and I have three children. I spend a lot of time uh, involved with being their parent. Uh, I'll often leave campus sort of before the end of the workday to pick them up from school, to take them to volleyball lesson or practice or swim lessons or something like that. So the flexibility of being able to do that is fantastic. It just means that at 10 o'clock at night when I put them to bed, I've got to get that work done. And since there's always way more work than there is time to do the work, it's never as if, I, I don't know that the last time that I've ever hit the end of my to-do list. And so the flexibility is wonderful, except the same things that go into making the flexibility also make it so that the job is never ending. There's always more course prep you could do. There's always more writing you could do. Um, it seems like there's always more committee work to be done. Uh, but I really do appreciate a job that just says, you know, this is the range of things we want you to do, do them well. And, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm micromanaged that I have to teach this particular book or write on that particular topic. Yeah, I mean, that is such a good point. The flexibility it gives, but it also takes. Um, I've been in the academic world for you know, two decades and my husband's an academic. Um, Kevin and I, listeners, we go way back over 20 years. And um, the work-life balance I find is awful uh, in the sense that it's never ending. You can never read enough, write enough. There's no natural stopping point. And I know other professions are like that, but the flexibility I think takes academics unaware because yes, I can rearrange my schedule, but my husband is always working. I mean, he is involved in the family. Um, and he, you know, is a wonderful spouse and life partner, but he's never done. Yeah. And, and just sort of the, the looming over your head that there's always more to be, even if you worked enough for the day, you, you know, it's not like you've ever reached a natural stopping point. And so even if you have done enough and want to go take a walk or go to the gym or read a book, uh, just, just for pleasure. It's not as if you ever sort of leave those things behind. Um, you know, the, the, the to-do list is always there in the back. And even when I'm just uh, reading a book or listening to an audio book for, for nothing other than pleasure, I'll often find that ideas come up that make me think about or even connect to some of my research. And so even my downtime, sometimes I'm like, huh, I wonder what I need to think about this in connection to, you know, some paper that I'm writing or a conference presentation that I'm, that I'm giving. So it's, it's really hard to sort of turn off uh, the mental life that goes with being an academic. But part of that is just the kinds of folks that are going to go into being professors are, are likely to be the sorts of folks that probably couldn't have turned it off very well anyway. That's a good point. They could be in any sort of industry and facing the same issues. Though it seems to me in academia, people prize flexibility uh, they don't want to be micromanaged. I mean, who does? So when you think about a department chair or a dean, uh, what, are the, what do you think are the kinds of things that could ha happen in uh, the academy that supports faculty, but also encourages them to be able to turn it off? That's a good question. Um, I mean, sometimes there are things as a department chair, especially I'm sure as a dean, I've never been a dean. 
I'm not sure that I ever want to be a dean or be a good dean. But there are certain things that you have to encourage the folks in your department to do. Uh, and often they're the very things that I, as faculty member, would myself hate having somebody else uh, make me do. Um, and so one of my one of the ways in which I approach my job as department chair is to try to be clear this is something that we have to get done. It has to be done by a certain day, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be perfect. I, I often tell my colleagues, the goal here is to satisfy. It is to have it not the best possible way that it can be. It can be, it just needs to be good enough to make whoever that we needs us to do this report or this kind of uh, task satisfied so that we don't have to spend any more time, right? So, so that's the relevant bar. We want it to be just good enough to then be able to direct our time back to the other things that, that we want to do. And so I think that telling my uh, uh, colleagues that, uh, trying to keep some of the even smaller day-to-day -day trivial decisions that take up so much and tasks that take up so much of our lives, just uh, to, to do a fair bit of those, uh, uh, on behalf of my department, just so that they don't have to get into it. Uh, so recently, one of our big projects this summer is we had to redesign our entire department's curriculum um, from three credit courses to four credit courses. We had just spent the previous three years redoing the major, redoing the core, the general education for the university. Uh, and so we thought we were kind of done with this, but then, you know, the the task comes down from the provost that we're going to redesign the entire university's curriculum around four credit and some two credit courses, which forced us to then redo everything that we had just done. Uh, and there were some tasks that I needed my departmental colleagues to do. And I just said, you do these three things, other colleague, you do these four things. Uh, but some of the really small trivial stuff, um, I could have spent maybe you know, 30 minutes trying to make sure that the person understood what needed to be done and making sure that it got done in the right way. Or I could spend 15 minutes just doing it uh, sometimes, right? Sometimes just doing the task, especially when you're doing it for 30 different syllabi is just easier. So part of my uh, approach to being department chair is to spare my, my uh, colleagues as many of the super small things that grow all too easily to take entire days out of uh, research or course prep time. It seems like such a fine line to, to you know, shared governance versus people talking about things and wasting, you know, wasting time. We don't want to waste time. We want to free people to do things that are um, of value and flourishing for themselves and the department or wherever it is they work. And so it's, it's a, it takes a bit of wisdom, right, to figure that out and keep everyone informed and engaged. Uh, at the proper level. Yep. I mean, academics are really good at talking about things and debating things, but not all debates are worth having ad nauseum to a certain level. Um, so for instance, I've got a colleague who just writes beautiful faculty senate reports. They're one page, uh, clear, they're, they've got, you know, the, the relevant issues bolded and and uh, for the past two years, as I've served on the faculty, and I keep going back to his reports because they're just so good. And my tendency is to want to tell my department everything that we talked about, and, but, but they don't want to hear it. You know? So I model my reports off of, off of my colleagues. And then I always tell them, you know, if there's any of this that's not clear that you want to know more about, by all means, you know, we can talk about that. 
Um, but if I can keep, you know, their weekly or monthly thinking about faculty senate to 10 minutes rather than 45 minutes, you know, I've just saved us some time. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great skill, brevity, right? To do it in the right way, the relevant information, um, that's certainly a gift from any boss, right? Because everybody wants to be informed on what's relevant, what yep. they need to know. So when you think about your work in the university, what's the best experience you've had, either with an institution, with an individual, with a committee? I mean, I, I have uh, just some absolutely wonderful colleagues. I mean, I've had some uh, wonderful colleagues at previous universities, um, but I came to Calvin because I knew a lot of the folks in the department. I knew its history, but I just knew them as wonderful. Uh, some of them had been friends for a number of years. Uh, I knew their work. So I came to be part of a department that had a long legacy that just had absolutely fantastic folks in it. And even when my university has been going through some uh, challenging and frustrating things the past few years. I have every day been grateful for the colleagues that I have here in my department, uh, not only in my department, I mean, I've, got, I've got some great colleagues around the campus, but when you are fortunate enough to be surrounded by like-minded individuals that value you, whose work you value, and you've all got the same vision for what matters and what you want to devote your time to do, I mean, that's a pretty fantastic place to be. That's what, I mean, what else do we want, right? You know, to, to be in a place, as you said, where you feel valued and you feel respected and you respect the people around you. That really does free you up to deal with disagreements in which you're gonna have in a productive way because you already have that foundation. Yep, I, uh, I mean, I would love if that uh, kind of approach uh, it was characteristic of all my encounters, you know, at the universities that I've been, and it hasn't always been, but even when I've got frustrations with other parts of the work, to be able to come to the hallway where my office is and to see colleagues and to be able to, to feel that where I spend most of my time and do most of my work, it's like that, right? Um, it, it's, it's a really fortunate place, uh, kind of position to be in. I'm very happy for you. That's, that's wonderful. So when you think about um, negative experiences that you've had um, either at the university you're at or other universities, uh, what's a negative experience you've had and why, what was negative for you about it? Um, I can think of two right away. And, and so when I talk about the one, don't let me forget to uh, come back to the other. I think that both uh, can be important um, or, or both sort of point to something that's important. Uh, one of my biggest frustrations, and this has been true of at least two of the universities that I've been at, is that a lot of the a lot of universities like to use the language of shared governance. Right? We don't want to just have sort of a top-down um, imposition of everything. Right? As faculty, we're experts in various ways. That doesn't mean we're experts at everything. But we uh, uh, shared governance is the idea that faculty ought to have an active role, not just in executing. Uh, the approach of the university, but deciding on central ideas, the mission of the university, and, and the direction that it should go. And lots of universities like to talk about shared governance, um, but not all universities like to actually implement shared governance, right? So one of the frustrations is um, I have spent numerous times on numerous committees at numerous campuses being asked to give substantive feedback on certain things. 
And most of the time I try to take those requests seriously. Um, but what gets really frustrating is when we spend a lot of time looking into giving feedback and, and then just to have it not make a difference, right? So sometimes the language of shared governance, uh, I think, hides an approach that really is um, faculty input and administrative execution of what they kind of wanted to do anyway. Um, and, and, and there are times when that might be the right approach, right? But then don't ask me to give you feedback where I'll spend three hours on a document, you know, talking about work-life balance. Um, this is one of those uh, examples of this phenomenon. I was asked to be on a working group to talk about uh, preserving faculty work-life balance. But I wasn't going to take time away from my teaching. I wasn't going to take time away from my scholarship or my, uh, you know, advising students. So it was something that I spent three hours uh, doing, uh, you know, after my kids went to bed to give feedback on all this. And then, you know, they implemented something uh, and then we ran into all the problems that I had pointed out were probably going to come up with, with the draft that I, right? So I just felt like here you ask for feedback, you don't value it. You wanted to be able to say that faculty were involved, but it was really just to say that faculty were involved and not to, to actually listen. So one of the biggest frustrations is is uh, when the time that we invest in things is not respected and there doesn't seem to be any sort of uptake. Now, I know that other folks might disagree with me on what the right decision to make is, right? But there's a way to make it clear that the, the kind of input that you've given really was taken seriously, even if it wasn't implemented. But I've had way too many experiences where um, it just wasn't clear that the time that I spent ended up being particularly well used on my part. Unfortunately, I think that's all too common. People do climate surveys or some other sort of survey because we want to get the pulse. We want to know what the people think. You tell them and you think, why did you ask if you're not going to do anything about it? Why did you ask for honest feedback if you're not going to give me any feedback? And it's demoralizing. It would be yeah. better for that organization to have never asked because then people in a way don't know, they might just feel a little disgruntled, but to be asked, you give it, and then you don't hear any follow-up is much worse. Yeah, we filled, we, uh, my current university went through a climate survey last year. The data of that was released to faculty earlier this spring. Uh, part of the period that they were looking at has been the pandemic. Um, right, which has made lots of things more difficult in lots of ways. But even compared to peer institutions, many of whom had actually had upticks, uh, positive growth uh, on certain metrics during uh, the previous uh, two and a half to three years, we, we scored very, very low on lots of important things. Um, and we are still waiting, you know, four months, five months, six months after getting the results of the climate survey to know what's actually being done to change the climate. Um, I mean, one of the things that has been done is now there's more listening sessions. But again, it's not always clear that the listening sessions actually result in any sort of uptake or if it's just a way to sort of like a release valve so that faculty and staff can say certain things that has then no impact. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it, it, it at least looks like those sorts of opportunities are valued by some folks so that they could say that they sought input and not that they could actually take the input. That's right. And as you said, it's not 
as if people are, are looking for or ought to expect that their ideas are gonna be taken up. But if you ask for input, then there should be some input back as to why we're not doing this and we're doing this instead, because we all wanna be heard and valued. And so being heard and valued is somebody, you know, you're not just talking to a brick wall, but many times those surveys feel like you're talking to a brick wall, which then makes you feel worse about the institution and about whether or not they care. And it just wastes time, right? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would rather know for sure that my time and uh, is valued and my input isn't, than make it look like my input is valued when my time is being disrespected, right? Um, right. I, I would rather just have, you know, like, no offense, you're just a professor. We don't care what you think about this. Here's what we're gonna do. Like, okay, I can disagree, but at least I'm not gonna feel like um, I was either sort of manipulated into giving some kind of, of, of response. Or it's just, I mean, going back to the, you know, the earlier conversation about the flexibility. Um, I mean, two hours in a work meet might not seem like a whole lot of time, but some weeks that might be the only time for scholarship that a particularly faculty member has. So two, two hours, you know, uh, can matter. So I'd rather spend that two hours on things that I think I can make a difference in and that I care about rather than giving feedback that is, so far as I can tell, just going to be shelved and ignored. Yeah, and it's that two hours that in a way snowballs because then it builds anxiety when you, you're wait, like I really invested and I'm excited, like you have this hope and then it gets in a way dashed, like, oh, nothing has changed. They said it was going to change and so it makes things worse. Yeah. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with um, anonymous surveys. Uh, everybody does anonymous surveys, right? Because if you didn't, then nobody will tell you what they really think. And I think to myself, well, that seems pretty problematic, right? That it has to be anonymous. So what are you saying about the culture here? So yeah. part of me wants to say that, the part that's a bit naive. And then the realist wants to say, well, you know, different departments are or different um, areas in an organization are dumpster fires, others are great. And so you're gonna be talking to some people who have really great colleagues, and other people who feel like they are under the gun. And so we want everyone to participate, but I don't know. I think when you're anonymous, then the administration doesn't have to respond because they don't quote unquote know who you are. Yeah, I mean, there certainly is, I think, an appropriate place for anonymous uh, surveys or anonymous reporting of that kind of thing, right? Um, uh, th there are very good workplace conflict-related reasons why you don't always want to, you know, to have your name attached to uh, a, a particular uh, bit of feedback. But in general, I mean, I'll often find myself signing my name on, on surveys where I don't have to do for precisely this reason, because I think that it is it's important to know if your name is attached, if somebody knows the uh, department that it's coming from, right, they know how to interpret the kinds of things that you're saying. So if you take, I mean, my department here, long before I came, has got, just got a, a really impressive history, uh, both at the university and across uh, other similar universities of just some really top-notch, both quality and quantity of research. Um, my, my colleagues, uh, write really good and, and quite a lot of stuff. Um, and so if we talk about how increased work uh, requirements are making it harder for faculty to engage in research, 
I think it's important to know that that's coming from this department for the past 20 years has perhaps outpublished any other department uh, of, of similar size on campus or at comparison institutions, right? Um, rather than it's a department that, you know, just, just isn't as involved in that type of task because maybe because they're involved in other sorts of, of things. And so while there is a place for anonymity, anonymity makes it easier to discount and it makes it easier for people to you know to just go uh, sort of unhinged right anonymous. I mean this is you know what we see on the internet in almost every possible context I mean this is one of my frustrations with um, uh, course evaluations the way that they are used on universities I mean there's first off there's just a, a wide uh, literature that suggests that they're biased in all sorts of problematic ways that universities that claim to be data driven then sort of find ways to ignore when we look at the data about bias and course evaluations. Um, but there's also just sort of a right this this kind of anonymity problem right where the kinds of comments that you're most likely to get are either the people that hated something that, right uh, either because the class was at 8 a.m. or right you're not the right looking faculty or they just hate the topic or the students that like would love anything that you do, right? So you, you get these very bimodal distributions even for the same course. Um, and it's not clear that, you know, that all of those sets of feedback or all parts of that sets of feedback deserve to be taken seriously in the same way. But since it's anonymous, we, we, we can't sort of tease apart or wait some of it more than we could wait others. Yeah, absolutely. The person who, uh hardly ever showed up and is getting an F and they're disgruntled about it. And uh, the person who just, this is the third class I've had with you and they love you. And yes, I mean, I've had many comments about liking the dresses that I wear. How does she teach in high heels? I got one evaluation for not liking my class because math was not their strong suit. And I'm like, I, I don't teach math. I'm not sure how I got that evaluation. So they don't even know what class they're in. That's a, that's a whole yeah. topic. One thing I wonder about in academia is, you know, when we come to work-life balance and the, I think, arcane system of how people are tenured and promoted, uh, which is shrouded in mystery. And I think um, different departments are better or worse at this, but in clear and um, clear and direct communication as to precisely what somebody needs to do to be a good colleague. Do you have any advice for how we can, in a way, demystify? Um, now, my listeners, I'm talking to Kevin Tempe, who has published an arm and a leg and then some more. I mean, if you look at his CV, it's incredibly robust and impressive. So Kevin has no problem with input or output, um, but um, it's not the same, of course, for everybody. So any, any ideas about how to humanize the academic process? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of when I came to Calvin, um, I had tenure at my previous university. And so I had to give up tenure and uh, came to Calvin. So I came um, as a, a, I think I was a full professor when I was hired. Uh, I was hired into an endowed chair, but I had to give up tenure and then sort of re-earn tenure here at Calvin because Calvin just does not have a history of 
of sort of bringing in tenured folks from the outside and, and giving them tenure. And, and, and I get why that is. Um, and so even though all my colleagues, again, the, the ones that I trust, the ones that I value, said it's not going to be a problem. I mean, the, you know, the process of tenure uh, at most institutions, including Calvin, is if you apply for tenure and you aren't awarded it, then you have a year to find another job because you're just gone, right? So, so I mean, it's a pretty high stakes decision. And so when I came here, I was shared a wonderful document. I've pulled it up here on my computer. It's eight pages, single spaced um, on our departmental expectations regarding scholarship for tenure, right? And, and so um, there are university expectations in general. Um, the expectations include scholarship, uh, teaching and service. My department cares about all three of those, but it's the, the scholarly piece that's often the most unclear. And so one of my previous colleagues uh, at the university wrote this wonderful eight page single space document of what the philosophy department expects for tenure. Uh, and it includes um, five different sample sets of publications and scholarly output that it deems would be sufficient. But my favorite line in this entire document, um, and, and it's written clearly by a philosopher, uh, it, it says, but even good policy cannot replace phronesis the excellence of knowing what ought to be done, right? So here's this, I don't, I haven't done a word count on it. 2000, I don't know, 1500, 1800 word document trying to be super clear and, and it just admits like you can't write a policy that's gonna clearly lay out what it is. Um, and so, but I was given this, the you know, my first week here. And so it was really helpful to me. Okay, so here are the expectations. The, the department is gonna make a judgment um, uh, even after I do all this stuff, but I knew what the target was. Uh, compare that with, I'm actually doing a tenure evaluation uh, at present for a, a, a philosopher at another university. And the, I can't remember if it was a dean or a department chair, the administrator who sent me the request and I agreed to, to do it with, uh, pointed out that at this particular university, promotion to associate professor and a wording of tenure, while usually done at the same time, are actually two different decisions. Okay, that's helpful to know. So I asked what I thought was a pretty natural question when you're told that these two criteria come apart. What's the difference in criteria for promotion to associate and for tenure? Well, like, well, we don't really have anything set. <laughs> so I'm like. <laughs> So that's not right. I mean, so clearly your, your university thinks that being awarded uh, promotion to associate professor from assistant professor uh, requires a different metric uh, or bar than being awarded tenure. But if you can't tell me what the difference between the bars are, like how am I, I mean, if, if I don't know how to answer that, then, then think what the, the person who's actually applying for both of these at the same time is going. So clarity of expectations given to folks up front. Um, when we hired a junior colleague a few years ago, we made sure that even before they came, I think before we offered them the job as part of the interview process, we said, here's this internal document. You know, If you're the person that we offer the job to, if you take it, if you come, um, this is what we're going to expect from you. And they had that 
again, I think before they left campus from their interview, that's really helpful. Even if, again, that document can't capture all the nuances that, that might go into having to make a particular decision. But that's, that's so, it's really important to mentor people, right? And so mentoring people, telling them when you can be specific, and then also, you know, what's a judgment call, but giving them examples of people who are successful, people who are unsuccessful and why, but that is a process of mentoring. And I would argue, you know, every discipline, every institution, we all need mentors in order to develop and flourish and continue on our path professionally. And so I would love to see more mentoring, uh, certainly at universities, but in business in every way so that people can have different kinds of opportunities being able to see in different ways because they can have other people come alongside them and help them. So Kevin, you asked me to uh, have you mention the second um, oh, yeah. uh, the I second was issue you had. <laughs> yeah, um, so at one of my previous universities, um, I, for a couple of years, oversaw a first year experience program. And so all the incoming students most of whom were first-generation college students, right? So they didn't have the, the, the privilege of having parents who had gone through the similar kind of experience. Uh, we had a course that all incoming first-year students take uh, to give them an introduction to what is expected of them at the university, but also uh, to give them some uh, connections between their courses and somebody that they could uh, know that they could approach even if it wasn't in, in their major field. And so we had to do a lot of coordinating. And so I was asked to direct this program uh, for a couple, couple of years. And, and we uh, revamped the entire program. Um, and, and, you know, and the first year with a big revamping, I mean, there were some, there were some hiccups, uh, you know, there were, there were some difficulties. But at the end of the first semester, our provost had looked at uh, sort of what the grade distribution was for this course that all incoming students took and thought that the grade distribution was inappropriate. Uh, thought that there were, had too many, uh, not enough students got good grades. They were worried about retention. They actually told us that they were in part worried about retention. And so the, the provost sat down with the list of students and their grades and just without looking at a single assignment that any of those students had done had changed the grades that something like 20 percent of the students received for the course and I thought you know every assignment was graded by the faculty that wrote the assignment and that directed that particular bit of content the the students had six different faculty, at least as they went through from different disciplines that you know, we're drawing on. And, and, and so for uh, an administrator to think that concerns about low grades affecting enrollment mattered more than trusting faculty for how they did their job was the most, the single most demoralizing day I had ever had in now almost 20 years of of uh, directing uh, or being an academic. And, and it was just so bad that I just said, you know, um, I think I had agreed to do like a two year experience of directing this program. I just said, when the, when the time I've agreed to is done, I want out, right? Like here's a program that I spent all this. And if you value 
what the faculty that have taught in the program in their evaluation of the students on their own content. So little that you can just overwrite grades without looking at what the assignments are, then I just don't want to be a part of it, right? And, and, and so that, I mean, I get that universities need to look at grade distributions. Uh, I get that we need to care about students who come for a semester coming back for other semesters. Um, but the way to do, to, to be concerned about those kinds of things is not simply, it's just about the numbers at the end um, and, and then to unilaterally reassign grades to hundreds of students. So that was the single worst experience I've had in at least 18 years as an academic. Knowing what you know now, would you have responded to that situation differently? I don't know that I would. Um, I mean, when it was first expressed to me, it was, you know, I was angry. I, I was very frustrated. I got all the faculty that taught in that program to sign off on a letter saying why they thought this was inappropriate, um, why they thought it betrayed academic trust and, and their expertise and gave it to the administration. And they, if they read it, they, they didn't reconsider, or maybe they reconsidered. They didn't change the decision in light of it. And there's nothing that I could do. Um, and so I don't think that I could know that this was gonna be the experience before agreeing to be part of the program. I mean, knowing now, maybe I would just say, no, I just, I, I'm not gonna be involved in that program altogether. But I mean, I think that the response really was appropriate. It was, it was to, to push back. Um, and I think that expressing expressing even anger and frustration in the workplace is often appropriate, even if it doesn't get certain kinds of, of uh, changes made. I mean, ideally, if the anger is appropriate, it will lead to changes, right? This is um, the, the motivational role that I think anger can play. Um, but there's just sort of an expressive force. Sometimes, even if we can't fix larger social systems, uh, uh, problematic structures, uh, policy, or other people's decisions. I mean, just, you know, some decisions call for public uh, group expressions, personal expressions of anger. Um, and, and so I don't, it was the kind of situation I couldn't have brought up about a different outcome. Um, I think that I, I mean, I pushed as hard as I could to have the uh, better decisions made. I don't have a say over that. Um, so so I, I honestly don't know. There are other times in my career that I've gotten too frustrated or expressed myself in problematic ways. It's not clear to me that this was one of those. So I, I don't know what I should have done any differently or could have done uh, to have a better outcome. It seems like that could have, should have. Uh, of course, who would have thought that that would happen? I mean, that's pretty crazy in academia. That kind of stuff doesn't usually happen. But it seems like, as we were talking about in the very beginning of the show about shared governance, like what does that really look like? When are the stakes low and it's just, you know, it's unnecessary to involve the faculty and when are the stakes high? And clearly this was an overstepping. You know, I think having clear and direct communication about real concerns, as you said, about retention and grade distribution and, you know, having faculty have real concerns about integrity, honesty, freedom, you know, and these things, while they're good to have this tension, right, this kind of conflict can lead to real, a really excellent institution, but it has to be managed. 
and it has to be managed well. Or you have the us versus them, which is good for nobody. And certainly the students and the community lose. It's not good for them. Yeah, and, and this university, I mean, this conflict was primarily with the provost, but it had uh, a president who had a similar top-down uh, leadership style. Um, when we pushed him that technically none of our documents talked about shared governance, um, they were administrative governance with faculty input. You know, like once they admitted, like, okay, again, you know, now, now we know where we stand, but it was not a particularly healthy place. Um, there had been numerous faculty that had left um, to go to other institutions uh, and had signed non-disclosure agreements as part of their uh, departure. And, and when you find out that there's, you know, a history of, at, at small universities, it's not as if their faculty are, you know, huge. But when you've got something like a 20% turnover of faculty in five years, uh, and every year, you know, on average, you've got at least one faculty who's signing a non-disclosure agreement as part of their departure, then maybe those are pretty good indicators that it's not a particularly um, healthy dynamic of a workplace. And, and that one wasn't at all. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry about that. It sounds very frustrating. You'll notice that I'm no longer at that institution. <laughs> that's right. And that's good. And I hope all our listeners know that if you find yourself in a toxic work environment, you do not have to stay. And I'm very sensitive to telling people they could just move on as if it's that easy. But I think the pandemic has shown us that there are a variety of different possibilities. And so I encourage you, if you're in a toxic work environment, that there's stuff that you can do. There is hope out there. To come back, uh, when I was a church custodian, right? I, I, I wasn't the only church custodian. I was one of a number. And this was you know, when I was in, in, in uh, getting my master's, my spouse and I didn't have any children at the time and some of the other custodians did. And so I remember on certain Sundays, um, you know, like somebody forgot to schedule the fellowship hall for a potluck or, you know, there was something that needed to be set up. And the way that we sort of divvied up the church is, you know, the, I was responsible for a certain part of the church and somebody else was responsible for uh, uh, a different part of the church. And we all had sort of our own division of, you know, responsibilities and labor. But because the other person person had children and I didn't, sort of like the last minute request through that we didn't think to tell you this needed to, you know, sort of all fell to me. And I remember that there's just one Saturday or Sunday um, that I just felt like the, the time that I had been spending there was, was um, not being respected. So I went in the next day and I turned in my two week notice. And I remember the um, one of the staff members there was just like, but we need you, you can't do that. And, and this really puzzled me. I was like, this is sort of a joint agreement, right? You agree, the church agrees to do, to pay me this much in, in exchange for the amount of work. And it's no longer worth it to me, it, right? It just the paycheck was not worth the frustrations. Um, and, and so, yeah, I can do this, right? If, if you're gonna think of this as a certain kind of exchange of value and it becomes no longer worth it, then even though you know, I, I didn't have another job at the time, and now there are other times in my life that you know, making this sort of move would have been way harder. Getting a new academic uh, job is way more difficult than finding a new church to be a custodian at or something like that. Um, but it just wasn't worth it. So, you know, this is, I, I think, an indication of the kind of thing, right? Like, it's not worth being in a job if you can avoid it where you're going to be mistreated as an employee. Right. Absolutely. 
Well, Kevin, our time is drawing to an end, but I would like to hear about your advocacy work. And if you could just briefly tell us about your advocacy work and what is your vision for healthy work environments that are inclusive for people who have different challenges? Yeah, so when our oldest child was uh, in first grade, uh, he's multiply disabled. Um, and we realized that the public school where he was uh, getting his education, we came to discover that they had been violating state and federal law for about a year and a half. Um, and I'm an academic, right? It's not like, there's a lot of things that I don't know how to do, but I know how to read stuff and I know how to argue. So we downloaded the state special education manual and we started arguing. And it turns out that the kinds of skills that make a good philosopher are largely the same set of skills that can help you push back on schools when they're not following state and federal law. So first we started doing this for our son and then his friends. And, and now I've just come to realize that this is sort of a, a, a huge problem. I've been in dozens of different schools in multiple school districts. And by the time I get in, right, again, there's a self-selection effect here, but by the time I'm approached by a family to try to help advocate for their child, I've never worked with a family that I haven't been able to get more services or more support for the child in the public schools. And, and so I just go with the families and work with them in preparation for their IEP meetings to try to make sure that the school is doing what is in the best interest and what the law requires of, of their children. I've also found out that um, there's just a lot of businesses that don't really care what the Americans with Disabilities Act says, or they don't know what it says. So, you know, sort of most of my advocacy work is in a public school setting, but some of it is also just local businesses that think that they don't need to follow, again, 32-year-old federal law. Um, and so the advocacy work is usually just um, letting people know that I'm aware that they're violating what the law requires and pointing out to them, I know who in the relevant state or federal government to report these violations to, right? For a violation of the ADA, you report to the, or the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Justice. And so when I tell people that I know how to file a, a federal Department of Justice complaint because their parking lot is ADA compliant, then suddenly they, you know, like, oh, please tell me what the requirements for a proper parking lot are. And, and so, so that's, in a nutshell, the kind of advocacy work that I do. Uh, the second part of your question, I think, was some of the conflicts. Well, so like when you think about Jameson and you think about Jameson and maybe um, some of the other students you come in contact with and you think about when they go off to work or the kind of work um, that might be suited for all different kinds of individuals, how do we bring about work environments that are inclusive, that welcome a wide variety, the human experience? So again, the, the bare minimum of this should be not violating 32-year-old civil right legislation of, right, of, of the ADA. Um, and so at a, at a very minimum, the ge physical geography of workplaces needs to be ADA accessible, not just for customers, uh, but for employees. They're uh, part of the ADA is about getting reasonable accommodations in the workplace. Um, and so if somebody has a history of, of uh, back pain or lower back illness, you know, um, injury, you know, get them a standing desk if that's going to be beneficial or let somebody wear noise he canceling headphones so they're not easily distracted or bothered by the sounds if they're working in a cubicle farm or, or something like that. Right? So as a, a bare minimum, people should be 
following federal anti-discrimination law. And, and it's, it's funny to have to say that, but it really needs to be said um, because lots of places don't know what's required or they make getting those kinds of accommodations really, really difficult. Um, but beyond that, I mean, taking an active role in figuring out how we can uh, increase the diversity of the kinds of positions we have at an institution to make it more likely uh, that we can employ a right, wide range of folks, right? So for, for at least 10 years, a lot of autistic adults that work in various places have asked for remote work accommodations. And prior to 2020, lots and lots of workplaces have, you know, like we can't have remote work options. It'll destroy work culture. It'll be, you know, and then a pandemic hits. And what do you know? Like we really can have um, remote work options that end up being good for lots of folks, not just for um, people who are autistic. I've got a friend in another state that works at a public university and as part of that university's response to the pandemic, you know, everybody was working remote for a year and a half or so. Then they decided to make it possible that anybody could opt into a remote work, uh, you know, and assuming that the kind of position that they had was uh, conducive to remote work, they could opt into with just a mere request uh, remote work uh, arrangements unless you were, re were requesting the remote work option because it was related to a disability, at which point there was a ton of paperwork and a lot of hesitancy to grant that sort of, right? So, so here, uh, this friend of mine wasn't aware of the situation at first, and, and then they, they put in to have a remote work uh, request related to their documented disability, and they started getting all sorts of pushback from the university. When if they had just filled out the same form and just said, I want, the, I want to work remote because I want to wear sweatpants or I don't want to drive my car, right, they would have been granted. And, and so I, I think that uh, workplaces don't realize how many of the procedures that they have end up being super disadvantageous to people with disabilities, um, when in fact they're often already disadvantaged by the way that society responds, right? And, and so here we're just putting an extra burden onto folks that already have something harder because of the way that our general culture treats this. Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about the bare minimum, right, like absolutely, we need people to uh, bare minimum have access and um, reasonable accommodation. But when I think about the future of work, I think about people centric. And if that's how you change your focus, it's away from the bare minimum, which of course has to be met, but it's more than that. Mm -hmm. um, we don't want to just treat people with dignity and respect. That's bare minimum, right? We want people to flourish. And that means all people, and I wonder when we actually encourage people to flourish, all people, it's better for, it's better for the bottom line. It's better for um, turnover. It's better for engagement. That means it's better, you have better products, better service. Not only is it the right thing to do, there are all, all these financial incentives. And so I wonder if when we think about, you know, when we really think about making a, a workplace accommodating. It's not that, oh, we have to do this for you, but wow, we get to 
be creative and work together for everybody. Yeah, um, there have been a number of companies that have uh, implemented this. So a number of years ago, CVS, one of their uh, warehouse administrators, that's probably not the actual job title, uh, but people that oversaw one of the warehouses where CVS distributes their various goods to their stores, uh, this uh, administrator had, had an autistic child and they were worried about sort of what that person's employment options were gonna be once they hit 18 or left college, were not in the workforce. And so began a process of trying to make, right, this one particular CVS distribution center to be diversity focused and good for uh, uh, not just autistics, but a range of disabled folks. And what do you know, it became like the best performing of the distribution centers. Right? And so then they outsourced it to all the others. They ended up play, uh, at one point, and I don't know if this is still the case, um, at one point over 20% of that particular uh, distribution center's workforce was was disabled, uh, but it also had the highest sort of like employment satisfaction scores of anybody. Right, so this is a, a, an instance of what you're talking about. We often think that making uh, work more accessible to a wider range of folks is just going to benefit those particular individuals, but it ends up changing the culture. It ends up yeah. making uh, it better for lots of folks in lots of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great example of what it looks like when we do the right thing, when we care about our neighbor, care about ourselves and our neighbor. Who would have thought that actually uh, we actually all benefit? Well, Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Mary. Thanks again for having me. Take care. Thank you for listening to Conflict Managed. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you have any comments or questions, or if there's a particular person you would like to see interviewed on Conflict Managed, please contact us at the number 3P Conflict Restoration at gmail.com. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Conflict Managed is produced by Third Party Workplace Conflict Restoration Services. You can find them online at 3P Conflict Restoration.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. If you haven't done so yet, please like and subscribe to this podcast. It really helps us out. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.